it is good to be back with you. Um, yeah, I'll actually be getting on a plane after this. Denise will drive me to the airport, and I will head down south I'm uh, to actually do a, a conference related to the book, and um, I hope it's warm. <laughs> Honestly, I just, I really need some, it's nice to see the sun again. I mean, that's, you know, it is Michigan, but um, hope we're not using up our allotment of it here in January. Now, I, I, like like Blake said, it was, uh, I think, the end of November when I was, it was here last, and um, and I remember that because when they, when I was given, you know, they do series, and then when they have, you know, like this window, they say, Jeremy, can you drop in and do this passage or this part of the sermon? I'm like, yes, sir, thank you, sir, may I have another, sir? And, uh, and uh, so, you know, you take, you kind of take what you're given, and as I started to, to work on it, I went like, okay, this is from Joseph, the life of Joseph on forgiveness. Back to November, sermon on forgiveness. <laughs> Okay, well, I said everything I had back in November, so I don't know where this is going to go, but we're going we're, no, we're gonna, to we're gonna talk more about it. I guess it, it probably means that God's got some work to do on me, <laughs> because he's making me preach another sermon on forgiveness. So here we are. We'll try to not repeat ourselves. But uh, yeah, you're at the end of this story of Joseph's life. For the last uh, half a dozen weeks or so, you have been considering the process of redeeming the dream from the life of Joseph, how to redeem losses and difficulties. Uh, and today we take that final step. This is kind of the end of the story, the conclusion of it. Uh, and to get a running start into it, just in case you weren't here or don't know the story of Joseph or that sort of thing, what has happened over the last six weeks is you have watched a sort of a like a very slow 20 year long car crash that, that was Joseph's life. Uh, it's worthy of a, like sort of a Game of Thrones episode, but with less impropriety, we hope. But then again, maybe not. Joseph was, in fact, sold into slavery by his brothers, accused of rape, the rape of his owner's wife, which he didn't do spent many unjust years in prison for the crime he didn't commit. And now, 20 years later, we meet, meet as the curtain goes up this morning, we find Joseph, now a very middle-aged man. But thankfully, he's, he seems to have started to come into his own. Because by virtue of God's blessing, even while in prison, he was able to predict a coming famine, a famine that was coming to Egypt, a very long, seven years that was going to come. And this so impressed the Pharaoh that he, he took Joseph out and put him in charge of the whole nation, basically gathering grain, storing up uh, material, food, so that when the famine hit, they, they wouldn't starve. So he's a very powerful man now. So when the famine does come, what does Joseph do? Well, he throws open the barn doors and sells the grain to the people of Egypt and the surrounding nations because the famine is widespread thereby saving countless thousands of lives and making Pharaoh a very wealthy man. He had no complaint with Joseph. Well, one day he's sitting on his throne there, and uh, some folks from a foreign land come in, and this was not unusual. Again, the grain was going out, to the, the famine was everywhere, so the people coming in all the time. But these are folks are different. They're from Palestine, and they turn out to be none other, you know it, Joseph's own brothers. I mean, he can't make this stuff up. They, of course, do not recognize the man on the dais before them because, remember, he is very middle-aged now and very Egyptian. In fact, I was at a, my wife and I went out last night for, for dinner and there was a fellow, you know, who came in with his wife or party, whoever, and I was like, I think we were in seminary together. I think. 
And he, you know, he looks at me and he's looking around and his eyes sort of land on me and then sort of like, and I, well, no, but I know the face. I know the face. I don't know from where, but I know the face. This happens, right? And that's only been a few years. So they don't recognize him. Well, you learned uh, last week how Joseph puts them through the ringer, a whole series of tragic events to test their hearts because Joseph, after 20 years, is not the same bright-eyed, arrogant young lad who was sold into slavery. The question is, are they the same cowards who perpetrated the act? Have they changed? So after many, many inconveniences, trips back and forth to Palestine and back, it culminates with Joseph making a threat to imprison the youngest brother. The youngest brother, the father's favorite, the one who kind of replaced Joseph when he died. Well, the brothers, I mean, it's like the last straw for them. And Judah, he's number four, fourth in line. Judah, it, it, it just breaks him and he falls to his knees and he cries out, for how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see the anguish this would cause my father. This is a very understated translation. Literally, it means I could not, I could not stand to see the evil that would come upon him. Meaning roughly, it'll kill him. If we come back without Benjamin... No more father. Well, this is a pretty pitiable response. You recognize it from, from Judah. It's, it's sort of part remorse, part fear, part self-preservation. But it goes right to Joseph's heart. It kind of breaks something in Joseph. And so at the beginning of chapter 45, Genesis 45, here's, here's Joseph's response. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone go out of my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers, when he told them who he really was. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and all of Pharaoh's house heard about it. Twenty years of pent-up frustration, agony, and emotion pouring out here with, with such vigor that the people in the rest of the palace, the rest of the house could hear it. We're told that the brothers were so terrified by this revelation of the brother now before them that they could not even respond to his first question. Is my father still alive? Well, it's a question they were well equipped to answer. No mystery here. They couldn't speak. They couldn't talk. Now, as a child, hearing this story in Sunday school, I thought, you know, I just, what would you think? I naturally thought, well, that's because they're like in fear for their lives, right? He's going to like call in the executioner. That's what they got coming. Now in my older years, having, having walked a lot further in life, I'm realizing that's, a, that's, a, that's probably not a true picture of how humans react to shock. It's too developed. That's too many layers deep. It probably, the terror was generated far more from a, a phenomenon of like seeing a ghost. The dead come back to life. Right? Can you imagine? These brothers have been back and forth, back and forth to Palestine, to Egypt, several times in this journey. Can you imagine what it's like for them to walk down the streets of whatever Egyptian city this is? The city, the, the, the place where they sold their brother into slavery to 20 years earlier? Can you imagine what it's like to, ima to, to imagine any, at, around any corner, any peasant walking down the street, anybody might be, you know, can you, the casts over, the, looking over the shoulder, casting glances around. It's almost like, like going back to your high school reunion after 20 years. You know the feeling, walking around with that trepidation that you're going to see that, that old flame or that person who did you so wrong or that person who really wanted to be your friend and hung on, you know, clung, but you really didn't want to be theirs and you just know you're going to run into them. And so with dread, every footstep around the place, from the punch bowl to the coat room to the, to the front hall, everywhere you go, waiting, expecting to run into them around every corner, it, it, it wears one thin emotionally. 
And of course, you know Murphy's Law. If it can go wrong, it will. So of course, your eyes lock across the dance floor. There they are. And they start to walk towards you. Your cheeks flush. You lose the ability to turn away or speak or move or anything. And they come up to you with a cheerful face. Hey there, it's you. How are you? And all you can do is respond with a... I, I, wish, I wish this were merely a metaphorical story, by the way. Well, surely the brothers had this in spades. No wonder they couldn't speak. From a narrative perspective, in this kind of a storytelling perspective, this is the place where you expect the author to drop the climax, the, 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 the moral of the story. It's the very, you know, top climax of the story. And our author does not disappoint. Joseph cries out to his brothers this. It's kind of the, the crux of the whole thing. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. I'm like, no, really, I am. Now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Don't miss this next line. It's the whole ball of wax. It was not you who sent me here, but God. What a remarkable and troubling statement. Sold into slavery. Oh yeah, God did that. It's almost as if Joseph is saying something like, there it is, no matter what it looks like, God is at the back of all the stories. This is a remarkable thing for Joseph to say. It, 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 I think it reflects a very mature understanding of human suffering and pain. It's not one that comes quickly or easily. We, our soul fights against it. I could not see Joseph saying this at the moment he's being sold into slavery in, into Potiphar's house. I cannot see him saying it as the prison doors the, you know, slam shut with him on the wrong side of the bars. This kind of mature understanding of pain, of suffering, is something that only comes with time, if we gain it at all. And lots of us never do. When I, when I you know, blew up my life in some of the most public ways possible, it's what the, kind of the book is about, it's chronically, this story is actually in the book. After about six, eight months of just sitting in my living room doing nothing, didn't want to go out anywhere, didn't want anybody to see anything. It was just, it was hard. I couldn't face anybody. Just the shame, the horror of it. And uh, eventually I decided it was time to reclaim, you know, one little corner of the kingdom, right? So I decided, okay, I'm going to go back to my old coffee shop. You know, by golly, they're not going to take that from me too. So, I, you know, I go back in and I push the door open, ready for, you know, a fight, whatever, I don't know. And Steve, the owner of the coffee shop, sees me, comes running around the corner, comes, Jeremy, Jeremy, it's good to see you, so glad, you're welcome, you're welcome. He drags me over, sets me down on a bench, brings me a, a cup of coffee and sits down and begins to pour out, like, all the chaos and horrors of his life, every bad decision he ever made in his life. You know, with his wife and with his kids and in his business, and like, he's just going on and on and on. And I'm like, you know, I'm not your priest. And then he ends, he concludes with this, like, yeah, we're all ragamuffins, all of us, all of us ragamuffins, it's all grace. Grace, there's nothing else. And then he asked me this question, he said this. He said, Jeremy, 
Can you thank God for it yet? I'm six months post-trauma. Honestly, I wanted to come across the table at him. And I almost it took everything I could just to say, stay in the seat. Now it's 10 years later for me. I reflect on his question. And my answer to it is more complicated. Yeah, there are days. There are days, maybe, yes, I, I think I can. Moments, depending on the day of the week, depending on you know, whether there's an R in the month. It comes, it goes, it's up and down. Perhaps, maybe, but not every day. Maybe 10 more years, like Joseph. Maybe 20 years out, I'll think differently again. That's the nature of it. We change, we move, we grow, we shrink. What about, what about your great trauma? Whatever it is you walk around with. Six months ago, 20 years ago, it doesn't matter. What is it? The thing that haunts you. Have you reached a point where you can thank God for it yet? Be honest with yourself. Lying doesn't achieve anything. And I'll tell you what, I'm, gonna do, I'm not going to make you answer. I'm gonna just going to assume that you're where I was, where I periodically am, and that you can't say that. The answer is unequivocally no. In fact, you're, you, you know, you, you, like me coming across the table, you want to come up here and punch me in the mouth. I deserve it, I admit. And you're thinking to yourself, don't ask me that, it's too soon. The wounds are real, the blood is fresh. Perhaps you're angry. Don't you dare talk to me about your God who's at the back of all of these stories. Don't drag God into this horror. You're sick of people telling you, well, you just get past it, right? I mean, it's so far past, and you, know, so you need to pretend like it just didn't really hurt as much as it did. Well, you've just got the settled conclusion that you're just not going to pretend to feel a contrition or a, repent or, or, you know, a reconciliatory feeling that you don't have just so you can get your Christian good merit badge. Well, I'd like you to hear me say something to you this morning, something that needs to be said. Before we spill any words later on the ideas of forgiveness and repentance and divine sovereignty and all of that, I'd like to say something else to you first. Something, honestly, I've never heard a pastor say, but I think it... I think it has to be said. It's okay. It's okay to be where you are. Wasn't it Yogi Berra that said, if you ain't where you are, you're no place? It's okay to be where you are this morning. Now, maybe not forever, right? You know, you can't, bitterness, angry, you know, the, the, that, we're not built for that. That's, that's not a forever place, but maybe it's the right place for where you are now. Maybe it's the logical place. Maybe it's the expected place. Maybe it's the only possible place for you to stand where you're at. And all that means this morning is that this sermon, you're just, this sermon wasn't for you. That said, that said, I would, I would like you to hear something. I'd like to hear a couple of things here. Joseph, even Joseph, after 20 years, was still bitter and angry. You can see how he treats his brothers. He may be different, but he's still a little brutal on them, right? He really puts them through the paces. 
The decision to reveal himself in the story, it appears, wasn't even really a decision. We're told he was overwhelmed, like the revelation came out almost like against his will. Like he wasn't ready to reveal it yet. He still had more he wanted to do to them. And yet here it all was. So, I mean, if that's you, and it's still too raw, too fresh, there's still things you want to do to Here's what I want for you this morning. Not what I want from you. This is what I want for you. Be where you are and just admit it to yourself. Be honest with yourself. Maybe for the first time. Yeah, I'm bitter. That's where I am. Because if you're just trying to pretend to yourself, feel a release that you don't, it's, it's just not going to work. It's better to be honest. Jeremy, I'm angry. Jeremy, I'm bitter. And to that true confession, here's what I have to say to you. Well done. Well done. The ability to speak truth to oneself, to be honest with oneself, is really the first step toward life. So I hope that you can, even from where you're sitting this morning, acknowledge that you can sense, that you can feel that where you're sitting in this journey... Thank you. I sent Blake running for these uh, last time. He had to go to Walmart and back... <clears throat> that you can recognize that where you're, where you're at right now is just a phase. It's a stage in the journey. It's a spot you're standing in. And don't fall for the lie that it's never going to change. Like, this is where I've landed. It's always going to feel this way. It's always going to... No, you don't have that option. I'm sorry, you're human. Humans change. We are in motion constantly. And what you do with your pain will decide. You, you, you can go up toward healing. You can go down toward despair. But the point is, you can't stay where you are. That's not a choice you can make. It's going to get made for you. So if you can say this morning, yeah, I'm still angry, but I'm willing to listen, recognize the victory that is. Recognize how huge that is. It's a step toward life. Joseph does not deny the pain his brothers caused him. He is honest in his grief. He does not excuse their sin against him. He doesn't call it what it wasn't. Time didn't make it go away. All time has the capacity to do is to shape the pain, knock off the edges enough so that we can give those events a more generous interpretation. And maybe in the end, maybe that's what Joseph's story is really about. It's about showing us how to assume a posture, just an openness, a willingness to whatever resolutions or reconciliations may be available sometime. Simple openness of heart. Well, before we move on into some more sort of technical conversations on forgiveness and repentance, I, I, let's just close out the story of Joseph because we are at the end, and, and Joseph's story does have a happy ending. He is restored to his father. He relocates the whole family to Egypt where he can care for them. And many years later, he dies old and full of years, surrounded by his children and grandchildren, prophesying that God would one day bring them up out of Egypt, back to the land he'd promised to their grandsire, Abraham. Golly, that's nice. Good for Joseph. Many stories don't have happy endings. It's true. But it is kind of nice when you do get to see one. When you see a redemption play out, quote, like it's supposed to, it gives us hope, right? I mean, this is the function. It gives us hope that maybe our story, too, on some unexpected day, through some unexpected circumstance, just around the corner, may turn out okay. I saw it in, I saw it in Joseph's life. Like that high school reunion. 
and you stand face to face with that person you've dreaded for 20 years only to discover that you're not scared of them anymore. They've changed. You've changed. The feelings of fear, infatuation, regret, whatever it was, loathing, they've dimmed. Maybe they got their life together. Maybe you got your life together. Maybe they aren't really the jerk you remember them to be. David Larvik punched me in the gut in fifth grade. I'm not bitter about it or anything. I just kind of hang on to it all the time. Just pet the parrot. That's what we call it in our house, petting the parrot. Like the, there's a parrot sitting on your shoulder constantly reminding you, talking, oh, there it is, there it is. And you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And you're petting it, yeah, like that. So, you know, pet the parrot. So at the end of fifth grade, we all went off to our different middle schools for sixth grade. And I didn't see David again for 10 years. It was in college, and home on some break, big interchurch gathering of some kind. We're all getting on buses to go wherever, and I'm sitting in my bus seat, and up the steps of the yellow bus comes David Larvik and Murphy's Law. We catch lock eyes. He immediately walks up, comes over, and sits down on me next to the chair, and I, I've learned my lesson. I tighten up my gut, right? I'm ready for anything. Study jujitsu. I'm ready to take him down. And, uh, and it turns out that in 10 years, David Larvik became a really nice guy. We swap stories. We're still friends on Facebook, for what that's worth. <laughs> we need stories like Joseph. We need stories like David Larvick to remind us that life is long, that God is good, and that anything is possible. So with that in mind, I'd like to spend the last few minutes, our last few minutes together, talking a bit more technically about these concepts, repentance and forgiveness, and how they relate. This is much more technical. It's going to feel more like this is the classroom now. Sorry, I'm done preaching. Now it's time to teach, whatever. If anything here strikes your fancy, I'm actually, there's an expansive chapter in my book about it if you, to give you a direction if you'd like to read more of any of this. But it, the question we're answering is what is, the, what is the way of forgiveness and repentance? How do they relate to one another in life? How do you redeem the dream specifically through forgiving? Well, to do this, let's start by imagining what you might call an ideal situation. And it's called ideal for a reason. But let's say that some evil has been done. It may be something small, like a little white lie, or something big, like a betrayal of a friendship or a marriage or something. But in some way, however it came about, I have wronged you. Okay, those are the characters. Uh, the peace between us has been shattered. Now, here's what's supposed to happen. Here's the ideal situation. I, the offender, will own the wrong that I have done and repent of it to you. You, the offended party, will receive that confession and forgive. And from that point, our relationship will be reconciled. Perhaps stronger now for having endured these troubled waters. Or at the very least, it's got a new foundation on which something brand new can grow. Now, I called it ideal. Why? Because it's going to happen. That is not how it often goes. The sy this, that system can break down at any step. The offender may not know that they've actually hurt you, right? They went on with their life. They didn't even know. You're sitting here bleeding in the gutter. They just didn't know they did it. Or maybe they knew they did it, but it was a necessary thing. It wasn't personal. It was just business. I'm sorry. It had to be done. Maybe they really truly are unrepentant. Sorry, not sorry. Maybe they're not even around anymore. How do you have reconciliation with somebody who's incarcerated in a worst-case scenario or relocated or dead? Like the priest who was trying to get his Irish parishioner to forgive his father and the, the parishioner's having nothing of it. How do you forgive a man who's dead these 20 years? How do you do that? 
It can also break down on the other end, right? You, the person wronged, you may hang on to it. You may refuse to forgive. You may desire vengeance. You may pet the parrot for the rest of your life. And of course, even this little, little you know, metaphor assumes nice clean lines between offender and offended, right? More often than not, yeah, maybe somebody threw the first stone. But by the time all the recriminations and vengeances have gone back and forth, in most situations, everybody stands in need of a little repentance and a little forgiveness. Like, you know, like I don't know how to sort out the Middle East. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. There's a reason I didn't run for president. Right? I don't know how to solve that. Every, you know, people, they've been killing each other for thousands of years. A little repentance and a little forgiveness, probably from both sides. And yet, the troubling question even beyond that, are some things unforgivable? Harm so great that even when steps, reconciliatory steps are taken, it never really happens. You two just shouldn't be in the same space anymore. Is that possible? This is an incredibly complicated issue, and I'm going to solve it in five minutes. No, all this is, all this is, with the few minutes I have left, is a, is a couple of important things I've learned about navigating forgiveness and repentance together from my own story. And the most shocking thing I have learned as I've read, reflected, prayed, and, and searched is actually this, that repentance and forgiveness are more alike than they are different. We think of them as opposites, but they actually are brothers under the skin. I'll give you a couple of, couple of examples of how. First, here, both require a choice. Both have to be chosen. Neither happens in it incidentally or accidentally or against your will. You, can, you can't simply wait long enough to have them appear. No amount of mere time will make us either remorseful or magnanimous. Either party can be stubborn indefinitely. And frankly, neither one is easy. Both parties are going to lose something in the reconciliation process. If you ever had to repent of a wrong you did, you'd know it costs you. You know, your pride has to like take a back seat and okay, I'm going to say the true thing. And if you've ever had to forgive somebody, you know how hard it is to have to swallow the desire for vengeance and not, right? You both have to give something up. They both require a choice. Well, you might ask, well, well then who should go first? How does, that, how does it work to go first? Well, I mean, the only answer I can give to that is that certainly repentance logically comes first. It certainly has a logical place because forgiveness can often be more robust when it's responding to an admission of wrong by the other. But here's the point. It doesn't have to happen that way. Neither need wait for the other. Yeah, I'm suggesting, shocking, forgiveness can be given before repentance has even occurred. You see it with Joseph, right? There's, there's nothing in the story that his brothers ever said they were sorry. They're just afraid for their lives, that's all. And yet Joseph forgives them anyway. It was certainly the model of our Lord Remember what St. Paul said, when did Christ die for us? While we were yet sinners. In some great mystery, God's work of forgiveness precedes my repentance. <clears throat> Took place on a cross. While non-negotiably bound up with my repentance, God's forgiveness is not held hostage to it. So I do not believe forgiveness must wait for repentance or repentance must wait for forgiveness. They belong together, yes, but where one party refuses to play their role, yet we must still faithfully play ours. That's the call. It can be difficult, however, to recognize when someone has actually done their part. And this is true because, again, a commonality, neither repentance or forgiveness wears the same clothing all the time. They don't look the same in every situation. 
You cannot measure the depth or sincerity of either one by any metric of the moment that you choose. In fact, every immediate indicator that you could come up with, oh, well, they cried, right? Or they used the right words, or there was a great emotional outpouring, or we hugged. All of that can be faked, intentionally or unintentionally, yes? Like when children figure out, you know, that they can say, I'm sorry, and I forgive you, when they really aren't and don't. <laughs> Adults are just as good at this game. In fact, real repentance and forgiveness may actually have happened where none of the expected signs appear. There's this lovely line in the fourth Harry Potter book where Harry Potter and his best friend Ron, they've, you know, they've had this, they've had this, they've had a rift, you know, for most of the book and they're just at each other. Well, they finally kind of find their way back into proximity and, you know, shuffling feet and all. And then this beautiful line, Harry knew that Ron was about to apologize and suddenly found he didn't need to hear it. You cannot put preconditions on how repentance and forgiveness are externally clothed. True repentance may or may not be accompanied with tears and groaning. And real forgiveness may be granted where no words were ever exchanged. And this is true, fourthly, because both repentance and forgiveness are a journey. They're not an event. They're not a destination. They're not a place you reach and then sort of... They're an ongoing thing. We seldom enact them perfectly the first time we try. The one who is repenting of wrong probably isn't even aware of all the harm they've done. I sure wasn't. I saw immediate like explosions and things. And then six months later, I realized, oh my gosh, I did that too. And then a year later, oh, that was part of it. And the process of repentance was years long as you recycle and come back to it over and over again as the growth of your of clarity of the impact you really had settles on you. The same is true of forgiveness. Yeah, you may have forgiven but then you realize, I didn't even know what all the wounds were. You know, like the car accident where you've got the visible marks, but the real deep stuff doesn't begin to show up until next week. <sighs> Forgiveness is the same way. You may have to forgive the same thing over and over and over and over as you begin to realize the depths of the heart that was caused you. They're both journeys. And it's a journey. It's, it's, it's a way. It's not a destination. And finally, and this is the one I didn't, I wish I didn't have to say, the, the fifth one. I, I, I almost, every time I'm like, oh, we'll just jettison that. But no, fifth, neither repentance nor forgiveness are optional for the Christian. It's the clear testimony of Scripture that the result of refusing either one is damnation. He who will not repent shall not see God. He who refuses to forgive the trespasses of others shall not have his own forgiven. It's the harshest of messages, but I have learned, I have, as I've grown and as I've experienced this in my own body and soul, the question here really is like, do I go to heaven when I die? That's not, that's not even actually what's on the table here. When we refuse to repent of the evil we do, or we determinedly resist releasing others from their debts, hell is precisely the word for what we are choosing we shut ourselves up in a cycle of self-deception or hate, both of which are deadly to the soul and can lead to only one end. Please recall both of these statements by our Lord. Repent and believe and forgive as you have been forgiven. You don't get to pick between them. 
Now, here at the end, if you're like me, your soul is probably pretty heavy with the question of how. That's all great, but how? How does one forgive? How do you release? How do you... Well, I'll give you, I, I gave you some thoughts last time I was here speaking on this, but I'll give you one more today. It'll help you, I hope, frame the thoughts in your head this week because my prayer is that the Spirit of God will not let you go from this. I want to give you one thought. If you are a Christian, then you know, meaning it's like part of how you became a Christian. It's hard to become a Christian without knowing this. If you're a Christian, you know, of course, that your sins were born on the back of another. Yes? Your forgiveness was purchased at the price of an innocent man's wounds on a Roman cross. Your peace was procured by somebody who interposed himself between you and your victims and took your debt into his leisure. Perhaps for us, the first step in learning to forgive is to realize that those who wronged you have the same Redeemer. To forgive is to recognize that other people's wrongs against you are covered by the same Savior who covered your wrongs against them. It is a scandalous yet beautiful thing to realize that in the kingdom of God, perpetrators of evil and victims of evil have the same Redeemer. No Christian can afford to forget this. We who have allowed our sins to be laid on another's back, we are now simply being asked to allow other people's sins against us to be borne by that same back. Actually, it's the central message of the Lord's table. We are going to celebrate the Lord's table here in a few minutes, the communion. And part of what that table communicates to us is that well, we're all perpetrators and we're all victims and we all have a common Savior. So here we celebrate that we are reconciled not only to God but to one another. And even more and even better, we're promised one day in a day that's coming a fuller and final reconciliation with all things. That's what's waiting for us. But I say to you now as you come to the table, there's no reason why we shouldn't get a little taste of that now. May I pray with you? Father, you are good. Even when you don't seem good, I pray that you would give us eyes of faith to see, to understand. Give us hearts of courage and love. Father, give us the ability to wait, to simply be where we are and be open to whatever movements you want to make. Father, even as we come to the table, remind us of the depth of our forgiveness, the depths of the bonds that bind us together. Father, this is family. Give us grace as we reflect this week upon the great sorrows and traumas of our lives.